This sermon this morning is, um, I want to say, is rated R for violence. And I don't say that to be trite. Um, I say that because it's the Word of God, it's brutal, it is gruesome. And I want you to know that up front. And I'm saying that, and, and as we treat this passage, we will do it respectfully and reverently. But seeing my great need for God's help um, and being ill-prepared for this text, let's pray. Father, who could possibly preach this? Oh, God. Lord, we beg you for mercy. I pray that your spirit... would so move in this place through this preaching. Your spirit would indeed do the preaching. <clears throat> I would get out of the way. And that lives would be transformed. What a glorious story. What a gruesome story. And those two things are real and they happen in the same text. And we ask that you will do an awesome thing in it. And through this time, in Jesus' name, amen. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, who made the heaven and the earth. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him, my salvation in my God. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may find help and receive mercy and find grace in time of need. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not be dismayed. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ in in Christ Jesus our Lord. And having said these things to you, That in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Him. False. Emphatically not true. 
In fact, there is no hope, no mercy, no help, no strength, no peace, no confidence, no drawing near of God, no faithfulness, no good, no love, no victory, no promises kept, every word useless, vain, and empty, unless Mark 15 is in the Bible. Unless Christ actually died, all of this is just wishful thinking. In fact, it's worse. Without Mark 15, we have nothing but hopelessness, depression, dismay, abandonment, wrath, divine justice, anger, death, separation, defeat, lies, anguish, and hell. But oh, praise God, Mark 15's in the Bible and Jesus died. Oh, how I love this passage. How I love the cross. Family of God, we stand on this word. We live by this word. This message is everything to us. This morning, I want us to praise the living Christ. I want us to have a worship recital this morning in this room, a choir practice as we sing the triumph and the victory of Christ as a family together. But if we're going to be moved like that by this passage, then we're going to have to see the cross in all of its colors. All of its colors. Its image is painful. Its activity is perverse. Its subject is bloody. Its effect is breathtaking. But its result is glorious. So... We're going to rehearse the message this morning, and I trust like we never have before. And by the grace of God, be transformed by this message. This morning, Mark will be our divinely inspired guide. There is no topic that I am more desirous of addressing to you this morning than this topic. And at the same time, there is no topic that I am more inadequate to address than this topic. There's no doubt about that in my mind. I feel totally unprepared. I could spend months of my life in this passage studying it and still be ill-prepared to preach this message. And so Spurgeon said that this subject is worthy of an angel's tongue. It needs Christ himself to expound it. And my prayer this morning is that by God's grace that he would do just that for us through the Holy Spirit. And here's how I trust, I trust the Lord has given me this to help you this morning, and it's this. I want to look at this passage from the perspective of the individuals involved in the text. Specifically, I, I want you to see, I want you to hear, and I want you to observe their voices, the voices of the key players in this text. Specifically, I want you to hear three voices this morning. Three cries or shouts, if you will, from and around the scene of the cross. And I trust that in hearing these shouts and these cries that it will enable us to observe something critical about the cross and its significance to us. Two of these shouts reveal the attitude of men toward the Savior, and one of them reveals the heart of the Savior himself. So if you want to follow my train of thought this morning, um, we will see first the shout of a mocker. Second, the shout 
of a Savior, and thirdly, the shout of a sinner transformed. So first, consider with me the shout of a mocker. In this case, it's mockers, plural. Shout of mockers. We pick up the story in verse 15 where Jesus is severely beaten with a Roman whip. Let's read verse 15 together. Mark end last week with this. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. This whip was known as the cat of nine tails. It was a set of long leather straps, and at the end of these straps were heavy balls, some of them heavy balls, and the end of other straps were hooks that were made of glass and metal and bone so that the the straps then would hit the tissue and tenderize the tissue so that when the hooks of glass and bone and metal hit that tissue, it would pull out the tissue, exposing the muscle and the tissue of the victim being whipped. Two men would have stood on each side of Jesus, one on his left from behind and one on his right from behind, and they would have taken turns whipping him. And this was designed to weaken him to the point of offering no resistance to the crucifixion team, which was completely unnecessary because Jesus would not have offered any resistance anyway. Jesus is the one victim of crucifixion that never would have resisted. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he did not open his mouth. He, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He voluntarily laid down his own life. But it's at this point that Jesus, no doubt bleeding profusely and fulfilling the prophecy of blood-stained garments in Isaiah chapter 63, his clothes were stained with blood, staggers to the governor's mansion, And this is Herod's palace. In Herod's palace, this great palace existed, the governor's mansion, where Pilate was. And our imagination now takes us to the blessed Savior standing outside the gates of Herod's palace, dripping in his own blood, and in the custody of Roman soldiers, and the head of these Roman soldiers, a centurion. The centurion is in charge, and... The mocking and the deriding is about to begin. But before we look at these mockers, I want to make two qualifying statements that are necessary for us this morning. First, in looking at these enemies of the cross, I I want to closely monitor my own attitude and tone. Because I do not want to study these men self-righteously. And I I don't want anybody to misunderstand me this morning. Listen, I don't view myself uh, outside of the righteousness of Jesus Christ as being even one ounce superior to these men. Here's, here's Here's how, by God's help, through His grace, I perceive myself this morning. Had I been present apart from the grace of God and only the grace of God, 
I would have been participating in some form of that opposition. In some form. So when I read the passage where I see myself showing up in the picture, in the paragraph, in the photograph, is right alongside of these mockers. I want you to think about that this morning. As we look at this mockery, see, this would be, friends, the conduct, this would be our conduct before the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Put me there before Jesus, before grace, and I would have been participating in this mockery. That's the first thing. The second thing I want to say this morning as a qualification is that it would be a mistake of extravagant proportion to assume that these individuals, these mockers, these Roman soldiers are solely responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. No. No, when I read this passage, I'm aware of the fact that it was my sin that held him there. The, The sins that were heaped upon Jesus on the cross were not just those of the mockers and the soldiers who were present that day, the scribes and the Pharisees. No, they were my sins and they were your sins. It was because of our sin that the cross was a necessity. And I would argue that, yes, though they did have a place in that crucifixion, I would argue that we bear more of the weight and more of the responsibility for that in the sense that we know of the cross in a way that they never knew of the cross and for so many years refused the Savior who was on that cross. So my attitude this morning, my attitude this morning as I read this passage, and I trust this is yours as well, is that we have to in some way or form put ourselves at this site. So these are my qualifications this morning. And Mark serves us well in that he presents the crucifixion then through the eyes of the enemies of Christ. And this helps us to see the brutality and the perversity of this whole event. See, from Mark, we can see at least four groups of people that are mocking Jesus. First, notice verse 17 through 20, the soldiers, the soldiers are mocking Jesus, 17 through 20. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. Now, purple was a fine um, article of clothing. It was considered to be a, a royal color. So presumably what happened is they grabbed a, a, a nice piece of, of clothing and they now present this before Jesus and they put this cloak on Jesus and they twist together, it says, the text says, a crown of thorns and they place it on his head and they begin to salute Jesus. Hail, King of the Jews! Hail, King of the Jews! Ha! And they started to strike his head with a reed. Now, this reed is, a, is, is, is probably the, the shaft uh, of, of, 
of of an arrow. It's like the the reeds that grow up next to the marsh. They're hard. They're hard reeds, and they used to make those uh, into the shaft of the arrow. And they would take this reed, and they were striking him on the head. And I want you to notice in verse 19 that the text says they were striking him, which implies that this is a continuous action. No, they did not hit the the crown of thorns once. They did not hit Jesus' head once. No, it says after they said, Hail, King of the Jews, they began striking his head with a reed, and, and they began spitting on him. Three verbs that are used here, striking, spitting, and kneeling down, all imply that this is continuous action. They are continuing to spit on him. They are continuing to hit him. They are continuing to kneel down in homage to him. So here's Jesus. He is this spectacle. Jesus comes before the battalion, it says. The battalion then is one-sixth. Of, of the whole army, which would represent 600 soldiers. So now Jesus is standing in the palace of Herod's palace um, at, at the headquarters of the governor, and 600 soldiers are there, and they're all gathered around Jesus, laughing at him, hitting him on the head with a reed, putting a crown of thorns on him, dressing him in purple, mocking him, Hail, King of the Jews, spitting in his face. And then they begin, it says, verse 19, kneeling down in homage to him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and absolutely making fun of Jesus. Verse 20. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. See, so far the mockers have been limited to Pilate and the soldiers. But the crucifixion, these mocking voices at the crucifixion uh, actually merge into a larger chorus of scorn. The, the mocking does not stop in verse 20. No, 19. It actually continues. This time, at the cross, there are nondescript bystanders. There are chief priests, scribes, and even the thieves that are crucified with Jesus all mock him. Look at verse 29. Look at verse 29. <clears throat> text says in 29, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and rebuilt it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Which is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah, of Psalm chapter 22, verse 7. They wag their heads. Even Jesus, this prophetic psalm in Psalm 22, verse 7, says they wag their heads. And it's exactly what happens. Aha! <laughs> you who would save yourself, come down from the cross. So also the chief priest, verse 31, with the scribes mocked him, one to the other saying, He saved others. Can he not save himself? But the Christ, the King of Israel... Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They're all mocking him. Notice that the chief priests and the scribes mock Jesus, not necessarily to the face of Jesus, but to one another. They're mocking. It says to one another, laughing at Jesus. He said he he could save others. Why doesn't he come down? 
And then the thieves, even the thieves. I mean, this, this amazes me that even the thieves themselves, they are being crucified. They are under, undergoing a strenuous uh, crucifixion themselves. I bet it's hard to even speak in that position. And yet they have the audacity to, to ridicule Jesus at that moment of their greatest pain? How, 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 far, how far does a sinful human flesh take a man? How, how perverse. Friends, at this point, let me make an application. Beware of the fact that this type of mockery takes place today. Check yourself. See, some forms of mockery are quite deliberate in that they overtly and sarcastically seek to write Jesus off or laugh him away. I have had an email exchange in the last couple of weeks with a person who was of that sort. Just let's just laugh at Jesus. <laughs> That's the soldiers, eighteen and nineteen. Or what about what about the skepticism and unbelief inherent in this passage? Friend, are you mocking Jesus as a skeptic? See, this is just plain old empiricism. Right? I'll believe it if I can see it. If, if you can actually show me, I'll believe it. This is the crowd in 29 and 30. Or the chief priest and the scribes and the thieves. See, they're all guilty at this point. They all questioned him. They all said, you, see, you said you would destroy the temple and rebuild it. But I don't see it. So if, if you can do it, if you can prove that, then I'll believe. This is skepticism. Well, what about you? What is your attitude to Jesus? Does it manifest an attitude of unbelief? Friend, know this, that unbelief is, is really just a subtle form of mockery. See, unbelief is a God-insulting sin. It, he who does not believe God, what does the Bible say, makes him a liar. Unbelief is a soul-murdering sin. Oh, friend, if it's proof that you want, you'll have it one day. But the problem is, by then, it may be too late. Well, after the soldiers had had their sport with Jesus, they put his own clothes on in, back, in, in verse 20, and they lead him out for crucifixion, verse 22, and they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. Now, when we picture Jesus bearing his cross, uh, we might visualize, as some of the artistic renditions have, Jesus sort of struggling down uh, the, the, the way with the entire weight of the cross upon him. The whole weight of the cross. He's, you see these pictures. That, that, that's not the way that it was. See, rather... It was customary for the Roman executioners to prepare a vertical beam at the crucifixion site, and the person being crucified then, they would give to them the cross beam. And they would ask them to carry that cross beam. So with Jesus, what would have happened is the vertical beam would have already been prepared, it would have already been in the ground, and they would have given him then the cross beam and asked him to carry that. So before Jesus makes his way from Herod's palace to Golgotha, 
this, this, plant, this vertical bar had already been laid there. Now, on many occasions, depending on how brutal the, the scourging was, the whipping was before, uh, some, of these, some of these victims of execution by way of crucifixion were not able to carry this crossbeam. And so others along the way would have to carry it for them, and that's exactly what we see happen in this text. In fact, we know from the other gospel writers that Jesus managed to carry his crossbeam all the way to the out, outside the city gate, and there he stumbled. Our Savior, carrying his cross, he stumbles and falls. Drops, drops the crossbeam out of complete exhaustion, out of weakness due to much blood loss. Oh, the Savior. Behold your Savior. He can hardly make it to the cross. Verse 21, a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, was forced to pick up the crossbeam and follow Jesus to the hill of crucifixion. By the way, verse 21 says that Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Rufus is mentioned in Romans 16:13. Simon probably was a lost person. Simon is probably just a man who was coming for the Passover, but was just exercising a religious duty, but probably had no real understanding. Simon probably was transformed by the cross that he was about to see, and his entire family was transformed, including his sons Alexander and Rufus, who became a strong part of the church in Rome. Jesus is at work. Behold your Savior. Now, Simon carries Jesus' cross, and once Jesus was there, he would have been placed flat on the ground on top of the crossbeam, and his arms would have been nailed to that crossbeam, and, and, and then Jesus would have been hoisted up on the vertical beam with his feet dangling, not yet stabilized, and the crossbeam would then be attached to the vertical beam through nails, and finally, uh, a tiny platform then was affixed to the bottom of the vertical bar that would give Jesus a place to put his feet, not only to stabilize his feet, for, for the nailing then of his feet to that vertical beam, but for the purpose of crucifixion. See, see, the reason for this little platform is that at the bottom of the cross, it, it was so that the feet uh, could, could exercise pressure and, and, and the diaphragm could lift so when a person was having trouble breathing on the cross, they could lift themselves and catch a breath. Now, this may seem at first glance as an aspect of mercy given to the person being executed, but on the contrary, it was done to prolong the torture. Because prisoners dying by this method would gasp for breath, and they would lift themselves up and breathe, which would just cause them to live longer. Because if they could not breathe, they would die sooner, and the crucifixion would be less torturous. So it was attached to prolong the misery. Now, we are told that Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross in order to show the reason or the charge for why Jesus was being crucified. Verse 26, Pilate writes the charge against Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, in the Gospel of John, John tells us that this greatly offended the Jewish leaders. 
And you can see why. Here's the Messiah that they've rejected. They do not believe that he is king of the Jews. Now it is written for all the world to see that he's the king of the Jews, even if it is mockery. They don't want anything to do with Jesus as the king. So John tells us that the Jewish officials go to Pilate and they ask him, oh, please change the wording of the sign to say, he said he was king of the Jews. But at this point, Pilate is fed up, well fed up with these Jewish authorities And what Pilate says, John tells us that what Pilate says is, what I have written, I have written. And so it remains. So they offer Jesus mixed wine. They divide his garments and crucify him. And notice in verse 27, he was crucified between two thieves, which is a direct fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 12. He poured out his soul to death and he was numbered with the transgressors. Now, in verse 25, Mark informs us that it was the third hour when they crucified him. That that would be 9 o'clock in the morning. Roughly 6 a.m., they would have started this process, the trial. He would have been pronounced guilty. By 9, he was hoisted onto the tree. He was crucified. And this is where it starts, the crucifixion. And friends, this is the crux of human history. See, all history is either pointing to the cross or a reflection back on it. But the cross is central to all of human history. And from the cross, we hear the second shout of this passage, the shout of the Savior. The shout of the Savior. See, Jesus saw this day approaching. He knew. He knew that Psalm 22 was foretelling his own death. And yet, and yet, Jesus still willingly went to the cross. He willingly went forward to sacrifice for our sins. The physical brutality of the cross, the awfulness of the beating that he endured, the shame of walking nearly naked through the streets bearing his own cross beam, and the agony of a five-inch spike being driven through his wrists and his feet were all dreadful. But the real intensity of the cross... The real intensity of the cross was just beginning. No, see, something much harder, much crueler, much more hellish had arrived. Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, was now being counted as a sinner, in fact, the sinner. And thus was experiencing what we should experience, separation from the presence of God, anger from God. See, the Son loved the Father, and the Father loved the Son. But now the Father turns away from the Son, turns His back on the Son, for He could not look at sin. The the Son whose greatest joy was to depart to a solitary place and pray to the Father and relate with the Father was now alone, isolated from the Father and hanging by Himself, utterly forsaken of God. We cannot, we cannot comprehend the God-forsakenness of Christ because it has no parallel in human consciousness. See, Jesus didn't just feel forsaken. Jesus was forsaken. The God-forsakenness that Christ experienced on the cross is not merely the absence of God's favor and blessing. It is the positive infliction of God's wrath on Him for sin. 
on the cross, Jesus bore the penalty for sin. And this, of course, is extraordinary because he had no sin of his own. No sin of his own. No, the sin that he bore was your sin and my sin. God made him, what does the Bible say? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, God's wrath is a judicial wrath against sin, and Christ is the sin bearer. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Listen to this. Listen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, not simply by being cursed for us, but by being that curse. He became the curse. R.C. Sproul commenting on that verse says this. Can you take that in? Can you take that in that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, the Son, the beloved Son, became that curse? He who is the incarnation of the glory of God now becomes the very incarnation of the divine curse. And he became the scapegoat, and the Father imputes to him every sin of every one of his people. And there we see the most intense concentration of evil ever experienced on the planet. Jesus was the ultimate obscenity. End of quote. You see, the physical agony of Christ, we can appreciate because we've all felt pain. Even the emotional agony that Christ felt by being betrayed, we can feel, and by being forsaken to one degree or another, because we've all been betrayed to one degree or another. But to be utterly forsaken of God, no, to be utterly forsaken of God, is to know the judicial stroke of eternal Justice. And friend, if you have breath today, you have not known that stroke. And I pray that you will never know that stroke. Thomas Kelly, who said in his hymn, I love it, stricken, spitten, and afflicted, Tell me, you who hear him groaning, was there ever a grief like his? Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. This forsaken cry of Jesus, what does it mean? What does it mean, this forsaken cry of Jesus? R.C. Sproul says, this cry represents the most agonizing protest ever uttered on the planet. It bursts forth in a moment of unparalleled pain. It is the scream of the damned. At the moment my sin was placed on Christ, the pure and spotless Lamb was pure no more, and God cursed Him. At that moment, it was as if there were a cry from heaven, and excuse my language, saying, God damn you. Because that is what it meant to be cursed and damned under the anathema of the Father. 
Oh, see the Savior. People of God, see the Savior. See the Savior suspended between earth and heaven, filthy with human discharge and blood on the outside, and now filthy with human wickedness on the inside. The Father can no longer look at His beloved Son. He can no longer look at His treasure, the mirror image of Himself. He turns away, and Jesus absolutely screams, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani! My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What could he say? What could he possibly say? People of God, what could he say? He was forsaken by God. The God-man forsaken by his Father. What could he possibly say? In verse 33, darkness covers the whole land. In fact, from 12 to 3 p.m., it says darkness covered the earth. And this, friends, is clearly not a natural eclipse. Oh, don't be mistaken. Nor is this, as some have suggested, the Father in some way symbolically showing His sadness. No. No, this darkness is a supernatural act of God. It is what I call the eclipse of God. The day of the Lord had arrived and it was crashing down on Jesus. This is the darkness of divine judgment coming down on Jesus. It is the darkness that Amos had prophesied about in Amos 8. Listen, on that day declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feast in the morning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. Listen, I will make it like the morning for an only son. And the end of it like a bitter day. Friends, over the centuries, many have taught wrongly that Christ descended into hell. The Bible does not teach that Jesus descended into some hidden away spiritual realm for a few hours during or after the cross. No. Jesus made atonement on the cross where we can see Him publicly bearing the judgment of God. His conscious experience of the wrath and torment of God happened publicly on the cross as a spectacle for all mankind to see for the rest of human history. For three hours, Jesus endured the hell of God. The hell of God's torments and bore the infinite wrath of God against sin, and He drank the cup of God's wrath to the very last drop. This is what it means for Jesus to descend into hell. It's him to be raised on a cross and endure the wrath of God. Christian, if you have put your faith in Christ this morning or ever, and Christ has exhausted the wrath of God for you, how could you possibly live as though God were angry with you? Oh, friends, don't belittle the cross. The wrath-bearing exercise on the cross is finished. 
if you are in Christ, you are well accepted. Because the wrath of God has been taken to the last drop. There is nothing, nothing left for you to bear on your own. No hell for you. No condemnation. Grace and glory and mercy for the rest of your existence. Praise God. What a Savior we have. Oh, and if you're not a Christian this morning, please understand that the wrath of God that Jesus could only face for six hours, He could only face it for six hours, you will endure for all eternity. Listen, listen, do you hear what I'm saying? The wrath of God that Jesus could only face for six hours, you will endure forever. You will be divinely and supernaturally enabled to bear that forever. How, how Jesus could bear all the wrath of God, all of hell, all the punishment of the second and eternal death on the cross, we cannot understand. We cannot wrap our minds around how He could do that. But, neither can we wrap our minds around how you, if you are outside of Christ, will bear the eternal wrath of God forever and ever and ever and never be consumed by it. Just constantly, constantly endure it. If you're not a Christian, please understand the wrath of God, then, you will stand under if you try to stand before God without Jesus Christ. What, what would possess a man to, to attempt something like that? The only thing I can think of is that you're, a, you're the mocker at the beginning who just writes it off. Don't believe it. I just believe that story. What would, because otherwise, what would possess a man to try to stand before God? How, how could you possibly do that? But listen, listen to me. Listen carefully to me, and I speak in love and mercy to you, but listen. How could you stand before God without Jesus Christ? You've seen how God poured His wrath on His own Son. Do you think the punishment for you will be any less? No, my friend, no. It will not be less. It cannot be less. It is impossible for it to be less. You too will scream. You too will cry out in distress. You will say something like this. When you are cast into the lake of fire, you will say something like this. Woe to us that we were ever born, that we ever came to this place of torment. Oh, it is, it is, a, it is a place of torment. Once we had a time to pray, once we had a time to hear, but we made no use of that opportunity Otherwise, we would not be in this extremity of pain. No, we would not. We would not. We, we, we used to pray, but we trifled in our prayer. And we dilly-dallied with God. That God whom we now feel to be a consuming fire to us. And yet we burn. We burn, but we're not consumed. Oh, this place is hot. It's hot. It's exceeding hot. Will not God pity us? Will not God have mercy on us? We once thought He would, but we flattered and deceived ourselves. We thought we would be well because we lived in a praying family. And we were frequent at church, but we did not pray like we should have. Had we any hope of escaping such dreadful torment? We should have, we should have known. We loved our sin. Our sin was our God. We slept at church and in prayer. 
But there's no sleep here. There's no ease here. There's no resting here. Oh, that God would give us just one more chance. Just just one more. Were it but for a month or two to pray again. Oh, that we had time again, time again in the same circumstances, in the same possibility to escape these torments. But it cannot be. Time is gone. It's gone, and we cannot pray again. Oh, time, time, how it slipped away. Oh, this eternal punishment that it would be over as fast as time went. When we lived 20 years of our life on earth, our life was almost over. But here, here, we've been a thousand years, and yet we're as far from the end as the moment we got here. This adds to our misery that, that we must be here forever. Here we are, and without any hope of recovery and any hope of deliverance, if only our pain were extreme, but the duration of it, brief. Or if only the duration of it was forever and the pain slight. But to know that both the pain is extreme and the duration is forever makes our misery misery inexpressible. What? What? Extreme and eternal too? Extreme and eternal too? Cannot we die? Cannot we dig into our own bowels and take away our own beings? Must we live in pain extreme and eternal too? Oh, cursed men. Oh, foolish sinners that we were. Damnation is a dreadful thing. We find, we feel to our own confusion that damnation is a dreadful thing. It is a dreadful thing. Hell is a dreadful thing. And that's what Jesus endured on the cross. But friends, here's the good news. None of you are there yet. None of you. And you don't have to be there ever. We've heard the shout of a mocker. We've heard the shout of the Savior But by God's grace, there's one final voice. And you know what it is? It's the voice of a former mocker who is transformed by the voice of the Savior on the cross. You see, when the Savior had finished His work, He uttered one last cry, Tetelestai! It is finished! Verse 39, And he breathed his last. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man is the son of God. What do you say? Who do you say Jesus is? Let's pray. Father, we have no words other than 
beg you for mercy. Transform us, God. Transform us. Transform us. In Jesus' name.